and welcome to Social Evolution, a podcast where we talk about the future of humanity and a whole lot of things related to that. And my name is Michael Porcelli, and I'm joined by my friend here, Max Borders. Good to be with you. It's good to be with you too, Max. Today, we're talking about these kind of related ideas of sense making, shared reality, collective intelligence, which I think is especially relevant to, in today's world because this whole idea that we live in a post truth world or a postmodern society, these are kind of hot topics. So, we're going to talk about that and what that looks like going into the future. Right on. And, and look, I mean, you, um, I, I always have to, to give you props when you're an expert on something. And I think this is one of those areas where, you know, your meta relating practice, uh, involves literally, I mean, and this is at a small scale, this is a, you know, a few people generally, or a small group say at work or at home, but it's, it's weaving shared reality is what you call it. There's a great piece, Porcelli, that you actually have online that people should check out called uh, Weaving Shared Reality. And it was one of the inspirations for a couple of the chapters in my book on collective intelligence. Yeah. And Max is the author of the really brand new book called After Collapse. And he talks about the, the future and the possible collapse scenarios that we might be facing as a civilization and specifically you get into one of the major factors that could lead to collapse is this breakdown in shared reality this breakdown in collective intelligence this breakdown of even being able to know what's true or not or what does the evidence say or doesn't it and and how that is in and of itself a risk factor and you know your book is titled after collapse so we talk a little bit about well, how would we be able to do that into the future? Like if we kind of go through one of these collapse scenarios or if we're in the middle of one of these collapse scenarios, like how can we put that back together in a way that is maybe an improvement or an upgrade to the way we've been doing sense-making and collective intelligence that kind of got us into this mess in the first place? Yeah, you know, I have to say um, the solution set of the book in chapter 13 is the most tentative for me. In other words, it's such a, a deep rabbit hole of a problem. So, you know, one of the reasons we're going to put our heads today, heads together today, uh, is because this is such a problematic, both philosophically, in other words, in terms of our epistemology, our ways of knowing about the world, mm -hmm. as well as the, the, our, our mediated mechanisms of knowing, you know, we are all mediated by screens to the point that it almost seems like a hall of mirrors, uh, that our reality is so mediated. Now we are trying to know a lot about the wider world and we are presented with the, with this, all of this, this flood of information and opinions and, and videos and this and that, and it gets rather polluted. Yep. Yeah. So we're going to, we're going to dive into it. I think, I think I kind of want to share a little bit something on, on a personal note or just how I've related to this in my own history. And then we'll talk a little bit about this post-truth world, fake news and all this that's going on around us that we can't seem to get away from. But I remember, you know, I, I was, a I was very nerdy in high school, you know, I was kind of at the top of the class and, you know, teacher's pet and all this kind of stuff. And I remember having these feelings, uh, 
like that I wanted to know it all. I mean, I sort of came across as one of those annoying know-it-alls sometimes, but like I really wanted to, and I really thought it was possible. I really thought, you know, I remember my adolescent mind going like, and then there's going to be a time when I finally know it all. And it just all fits together. (laughs) (laughs) And then the more I became educated, the more, you know, especially like my college years were just completely and utterly humbling. I was like, Whoa, this is crazy. It was it was almost like the more I found out about stuff, especially in my specialized fields of like engineering and computer science, the more I realized how much more I did not know. It was kind of a nutty kind of realization, but I remember that feeling and then it's it's a little um it's a little bit overwhelming, a little bit humbling and also just a little bit like I don't, I don't know what to do with that. Like somehow I have to basically just fucking give up on knowing it all and just accept that it's going to be fucking limited. No matter, no matter how much more I know, I'm just going to hit, there's just a limit, right? I mean, I got to live my life, right? I'm not, I'm not just here to store all humanity's knowledge in my brain. It wouldn't even fucking fit. Right. Like, I mean, it's a weird feeling. Yeah. Oh, I, I, I relate so much to that feeling. And the first thing that that humility gave to me back then, uh, at least in the college years, was this not not just a humility, but almost worse than that, a nihilism. Yeah. Like, wow, we really are constrained in these in these various ways. What I came to discover is n- no less humbling, but that the more we know, the more we're opening new doors, new new doors, new new pathways to inquiry, so that it is. It is a constant process. You're, you're sort of opening a door to a new room in which you open a new door to a new room. And it's, it's this fractal, you're, you're sort of accreting this fractal of information and in so doing, trying to keep it in coherence. Yeah. And that is, that is a beautiful thing. It is a kind of unfolding that is more beautiful and more complex as you, as you age, but it also leaves you much in the way Socrates was left, which is the more you know, the re- the more you realize that you know very little. And yeah. so that that paradox of knowledge, I think, um, is something that we can never fully escape, but one that we we have to reckon with in trying to, as you put it, we've shared reality and aim towards truth tracking or collective intelligence. Yep, totally. Yeah, I was just reminded of um, when you brought Socrates up. It's like, well, a mark of wisdom, according to the Oracle, was that he knew that he didn't know, right? And and I'm hoping that, you know, if you've relating to anything Max and I are sort of sharing, like maybe the, the depression or nihilism that comes from realizing the rec- you know, the limits of your knowledge can sort of be but- buttressed, perhaps by a sense of growing wisdom and. You know, having a healthy skepticism and an intellectual humility about your own views and maybe even seeing that as a, as a good thing in and of itself, even though, you know, knowing everything and, is And, impossible. you know, also with a critical eye, and I mean critical thinking, not critical theory. Yeah. Um, which is to say, you know, this is really one of those domains that you probably can't know. Mm-hmm. And your line of inquiry here should leave you humble, not having all the answers. And we'll get more into that today when we discuss expertise, the problem of expertise, and so on. I mean, there's just there's so many dimensions to 
claims to knowledge, claims to knowledge sets. Yeah. We know that there are people who are smarter than others. We know there are people who are who work their entire lives to become experts in some discipline or domain. And we have to respect that. But we also have to require of them that they respect the limits of their expertise. And uh, in these days, there's so much faith on expertise that is perhaps unwarranted and even dangerous. Yeah. So let's, let's get there. Um, I mean, I think especially, I don't even know when people, there's all these different catchphrases seem like they caught on the last four years, like a uh, post-truth fake news. That's mm -hmm. fake news. That's fake news. Uh, alternative facts was another one that sort of had a little moment in the sun and like, and truthiness, tr truthiness, truthiness. It, it was like, it, it's kind of, it's kind of humorous in a way. I, I think there's perhaps a kind of nihilism that some people have embraced that scares me. I mean, to the degree it is embraced sincerely, this idea that I guess we are in a post-truth world and I guess we just have to fucking accept it. You know, it's like, no, no, no. Like the part, the part of me that like gets how engineering and science works, you know, is like, no, you don't just get to fucking make it up and, you know, cart, you know, <laughs> planes fly and cars run and, you know, econ economics and our whole civilization works together because we can con converge, right? Using our tools of the scientific method and engineering and collective intelligence and sense making like build stuff that in fact works because it, it is grounded in some, you know, understanding of how the physical universe works. So I think that's, important to remember but you know i i think this entire uh situation that we're in i think has been incredibly amplified in the age of the internet partly because there's just so much more information available uh sometimes i think of the have you heard of this like law of the infinite cornucopia this is, I can't remember which thinker thought of this one. It's a, it's a funny one. It's, it's almost like you can just go, hey, I think whatever. And then you could just like type in whatever into like a search engine and essentially find evidence for that thing. It's like there's just mm. so much information. You can literally find evidence for anything you want to find evidence for. You can. It's a, it's a confirming your biases cornucopia. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. We're just in an information situation where there's so much of it that we can, if we wanted to confirm any bias we wanted by finding other people saying or thinking things that are close enough that we're like, see, I'm right. It's crazy. Yeah. 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 And I, and I think if you, if you stretch it back, you know, there was kind of this emergence of, you know, early 20th century, early to mid 20th century thought kind of hit some really interesting breakdowns you know, some of which were more along the lines of this kind of continental philosophy, critical theory, the kind of progenitor of postmodern thought that mm -hmm. kind of really took off with the French in the in the mid 20th century. But also mm -hmm. certain things uh, like, um, you know, Hilbert's program and the, the, the kind of the attempt to the, the formalists in math and, you know, to try to like s secure math on logical footing or this idea that the, you know, like all these things are going to end up being consistent. And then, you know, Goidel's incompleteness theorem kind of comes along and it's like, wait a minute, we can't, we can't do that. Like these, these weird projects kind of almost like the peak of the modernist sort of formalism kind of broke down in a way that it's never recovered from. 
and science uh, can you know more from perhaps more familiar to people in the hard sciences is yes. the apparent breakdown of our traditional scientific method and epistemology with respect to Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. Yep. Or in, you know you know uh, Niels Bohr you know the phenomena of the very small the mm -hmm. theory of relativity on you know the macro level. Yes. Now, these are all areas where we uh, we took our scientific lenses and that discipline and found limits both to the objects of inquiry as well as the inquiry itself. Totally. And there's this kind of there's this kind of feedback loop that that caused us to question everything. Everything. Um, and yet that was tremendously fruitful. So you know it's not to say that the postmodern project and the, the kinds of insights that came out of postmodernism are, are all shit because they're not. Mm -hmm. um, they leave us in a kind of kind of a circuitous, circuitous irony <laughs> that that can be playful, but not fruitful. Um, it's only fruitful, generally speaking, in service of power assertions. And. And I, you know, I want, I want to, and that's fruitful for someone who's asserting the power and are successful in making those assertions. But beyond that, that's not the same thing as weaving shared reality. That is not the same thing as trying to appreciate or apprehend that which is a mind-independent reality and navigate it together as a human community. That's a, those are two different projects. And I'm not saying that's all postmodernism. Yeah. I, what I am saying is that's what has been distilled uh, and distilled and taken from the postmodern project is that power assertion model. Um, so, yeah. you know, more or less. And so we, you know, we can talk about the, the details of that, but I think it, we are living in a postmodern de facto postmodern age uh by virtue, not just of the strands of postmodernism that are still holding sway in people's minds, mm -hmm. but we're also in it because of the nature, the technological nature of our interactions now as being mediated by screens and digits. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I think it kind of bears maybe one more stroke on the the historical thing. Like we saw a similar uh kind of i suppose bounty of misinformation that happened in the wake of the printing press right like it, it you know witch hunts and all the you know crazy conspiracy theories during that time like there was a way we, we kind of think or maybe we were taught in school like hey you know the scientific progress and modernism and it was all like the printing press and it was great and now the, now the facts are out there and people are sharing facts and it's like that did happen but the other thing that also happened was a bunch of nonsense spread like crazy. And, you know, I, I remember in my college years when I first encountered the internet, you know, this was back in the early nineties. I was like, this is incredible. This is going to change everything. Like all of the knowledge can essentially be digitized. It could essentially just be sent around at like basically little to no transactional costs, right? Like we don't need paper anymore. It was just kind of like, you can kind of see the implications of this. And I think in my idealism at that age, I was like, this is going to be a whole new frontier of like more knowledge, like more understanding. Remember, like I just shared with my, my adolescent mind was like, oh my God, we're going to, you know. Me too. <laughs> and, and Sturgeon, Sturgeon's law came out pretty soon thereafter. 
I think the 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 paraphrase is ninety percent of everything on the internet is shit, um, <laughs> which is not even Pareto, right? Yeah. That's not even twenty percent. I mean, it's it's like, um, so it's funny that that he that he made it ten percent, but but there's there's a what's so funny about Sturgeon's Law is it's it 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 has the benefit of being truthy. <laughs> In other words, ninety percent of everything out there really is kind of shit. Yeah, and we have to learn to wade through it in order to to grab on to any facet of reality that will allow us, it, at least in a pragmatic sense, to form this kind of intersubjective solidarity that we're looking for in this topic of conversation today. Yeah, totally, yeah. totally. I mean, I, I've I've gotten kind of scared in a way in, in in especially this past year. Right, we're in the, you know, we're still inside of a you know COVID nineteen pandemic and. You know, it's, this is, so, oh gosh, that's such a good example. I mean, <laughs> I, 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 when you said, as soon as you said, you know, the, the pandemic, yeah. it's, you're absolutely, you're just spot on. It's like, oh yeah. Remember we had the, uh, 2017 or so we had this discussion, um, uh, Jordan Hall about the blue church, Curtis Yarvin, uh, a couple of years before was talking about the cathedral. Yep. It is essentially this this idea it's a symbol of in in the, the church and the church hierarchy is is the main you know domain of comparison because it's mm -hmm. like we have these institutions that are supposed to be the stewards of knowledge right uh, and truth and so we have this this modernist idea that persists to this day and people are absolutely slavish to it as a religion which is mm -hmm. you know we get we get these quotes during the pandemic, trust the experts, right? Yeah. Which is basically say, don't trust yourself. You are not an expert. You are yep. not a steward of knowledge. Follow, obey, and we'll all be okay if you trust the experts. And they're Follow like the science. zombies, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. And oh my God, the experts were just wrong left and right. It's, I mean, like, it's just a litany of, of, of um, poor, poor decisions on the part yep. of experts, as well as poor advice and poor claims to knowledge. Everything from the noble lies about not wearing a mask that came from the same man who was dressing us down for not wearing masks to, you know, the, the, the idea that some authorities should be holding back life-saving vaccines to make sure they're, they're safe, you know, putting the pause button on them because a couple of people, uh, you know, tiny, tiny subset of people showed uh, these blood clots, but you measure that against the daily death toll. And it's like, stop it, you know, let people take their risks, be aware of the risks quickly, and then get this stuff to market and the people can make their own risk assessment. And yet people are t often terrible at their, at, at assessing risks, like yeah. relative risk and risk analysis is just not something that people can do very well, at least. Yep. Anyway, there's just so much here. Oh, with yeah. this this subject matter, like I could rattle on, but I want. Let's put it another way. Uh huh. We know that there are people. We've talked before about the idea that people have cognitive limitations. Yeah. Right. We also know that there are expertise limitations. Right. Would you Would you go to? I mean, would you do surgery on yourself or someone you loved? Right. Would you? No. Of course not. That's amateur hour. We, we, you know, there are certain things, of course, we want expertise on, but 
How is it that you can develop a lens of mistrust or skepticism for expertise? How do you do that personally? Well, we come back to that in just a second. I mean, I, I think, you know, just for the listeners to whatever degree you maybe found yourself like either resonating with some of the skepticism Max described or not really take a step back and think of, try to answer the question Max is posing to me for yourself. Right. I mean, another refrain from this past year has not just been trust the experts. It's also been do your own research, do your own research, man. Get out there and figure it out for yourself. And it's like sometimes when Confirm I hear biases in the cornucopia, of, exactly. Of when, when, so, when I hear somebody going like, do your own research or I did my own research. This is sort of like a red flag of like, uh oh, I probably am not going to trust anything that this person is about to say. But the funny thing is like. I was out there also doing my own research some of the time, right? Like, I mean, I, this is, this is a deep problem. And I don't know if I'm going to have a simple answer to it, but you know, I, um, you know, understanding being educated about cognitive biases and logical fallacies was one step along the way. And I've definitely hit that, you know, multiple times in my life. And, you know, I, that's been helpful. Uh, I think also trying to consider, um, you know, the rationality community has like a, some, a lot, a variety of, you know, pieces of advice, little kind of techniques for, you know, you, you could even, you know, it just imagine you had to like, even if you just imagine you had to bet real money on the thing without even betting real money and ask yourself, would you bet the real money on this can actually actually yes. correct your own bias. It's kind of a funny little mental trick you can kind of do. Um, now this is, you can take this and, and, you know, apply it to yourself, but you asked me like, how do I do it with, you know, expertise and, uh, you know, what you can kind of apply this, these kind of techniques you could apply to your own biases or your own thoughts to the experts, but also I think sampling, sampling across, uh, different sources, you know, you know, when a, when a big news thing happens, I'm like, well, obviously there's going to be hot takes across the political spectrum from all kinds of places. So let me, examine them even sometimes i would try to predict okay oh like i heard this breaking news let's say like i heard it on what you know my new york times feed i'm like blah, blah blah i'm like i bet you ben shapiro has a take on this and instead of like here going i'm like let me think what do i think his take would be you know and then i go over and i listen to him I'm like oh i was kind of right about this and kind of wrong about this so doing little games of trying to kind of predict and in a way like it's not just me trying to be right about what ben shapiro would think about the thing it's really that in and of itself is as another data point. Like I'm trying to kind of triangulate what I think is likely to be the case if I were to account for all of the takes, but it's a little, it's a little tricky because it's, it's like I'm trying to regard you know, another, another way of putting this is a lot of what the news has become has not been what happened. A lot of what the news has become is like, what are people saying about what happened, which is kind of weird, but like it is, I think part of this kind of whatever you want to call it, the post-truth or post-modern condition. And you're kind of trying to have to, you know, I think it's somehow journalistic norms sort of gave up on objectivity. I mean, maybe this had to do with, um, what was the, what was the doctrine that I think Reagan got rid of in, in terms of broadcasting? Yeah, the fairness doctrine. The fairness doctrine. I think something happened after this where suddenly people are like, oh, cool, we'll, we'll just make news basically into takes now and let fucking people figure it out for themselves. So, you know, in a way, I don't know if it's, it's more honest in a way, because it's not trying to present like a quasi-objectivity, but in another way, it's like, wow, I got to, 
I guess I got to kind of piece it together myself by looking at it from many multiple oh, angles. God, you know, and it's it's funny what you say that because we have this idea that in the era of of uh, you know the three networks, the two major papers, and the university system back yeah. in the fifties and sixties, you know, apart from skepticism about authority, man, that the hippies had, and they were right, right. to be skeptical of that authority. Yeah, but there was still this general consensus about the blue church. That is that there was this hierarchy that had access to knowledge because of uh, the relative laurels and expertise and all of this kind of stuff. And generally speaking, you you referred to those experts in their studies, their peer-reviewed journals, their their what whatever they said as a talking head when they're invited on the news, and you sort of accepted it as a species of faith. You know, and it's not like we were suddenly thrust into the postmodern condition by virtue of the internet. Right. It's that we were always in this condition and we simply had faith in this apparatus of knowledge where today we, we don't and can't because it's been broken apart by the internet essentially. And that, and, and so it's like, you know, we, we navigated the world in, in great measure based on faith in this stuff. And today we just can't find our moorings anymore. This hall of mirrors that is the, that is the um, post-truth internet age is kind of like, um, gives us more at our disposal and yet less mm -hmm. in terms of what to grab onto. Because we, you're right, we're always gonna confirm our biases. But I'll, gi I'll give you a quick example. The other day, um, I, I, love, I love examples of, picking on people on, on social media because it, it you know, I, I do it sometimes and I can't help myself, but there's yeah. this very, very smart, but also very, very partisan man named David Brin. He's a, he's a science fiction writer. He also wrote yeah. a, a great little book called the transparent society, but totally. he is such a partisan. And so the economic talking points of the democratic party versus the Republican party, he, he hews to that, that line pretty much verbatim. And, and so he was touting and praising the next, the next, uh, uh, round of spending from Bi the Biden administration, which is purportedly to be an infrastructure bill. Mm -hmm. Right. And that this was going to accelerate the economy and do all these wonderful things. And, um, you know, compete with the Belt and Road Initiative and also be gr a, gr a form of the Green New Deal. And he was just basically saying that, you know, and, and used the word Keynes in the context of his post. So I said, you know, all of this, I said something to the effect of all of this helicopter, Keynesian helicopter money and, and uh, special interest spending is, 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 is just so much bullshit, essentially, was the, was the bottom line. And I didn't have time to unpack it and give any kind of, uh, you know, Hayekian response or, you know, comparative analysis. We know that when when the government builds roads, those things have value, but you have to relativize it uh, to all manner of other dimensions in the economy. Right. Mm -hmm. But in the context of. In the context of this, this comment, all of his, you know, fanboys and girls were just sort of jumping on me saying, you don't think that roads have value? How will, we, you know, how will we get around and all this? I was like, no, that's not what I'm saying. It's like, we have right. this unprecedented debt 
and debt spending, we've already gone through three rounds of stimulus spending. We are at 118% to 130% of GDP in our debt levels. <clears throat> and the idea that we're somehow going to spend our way out of that by stimulating the economy with, with this spending is essentially a bankrupt idea. But I couldn't fully explain that. And so what's interesting about it is he challenged me to a bet. But there was uh -huh. no terms to the bet. It's like he was trying to pretend like he was part of the rationality community, which was it was so transparent in, in this regard. I said, <laughs> I'll, I'll bet you any time, any day, and I'll debate you any time, any day, because I'm I'm I will put my understanding of economics up against yours any day. But the thing is, what he was trying to do in playing like or posturing as if he were part of the rationality community is he didn't propose any terms of the debate. He didn't say what aspect we were going to, you know, debate over or going to seek truth about. And and I guarantee whatever he would have proposed, we would have found ourselves in this post-truth hall of mirrors where we could or into the cornucopia where we had gone to our relative cornucopias and found everything we wanted to support our positions. Yep. And no one would have been able to to actually win the bet. Yep. And the only way to do those bets is to is to behave like a, a Philip Tetlock. Yep. There is, there's a lot in what you said. Um, and I appreciate you making it kind of a concrete example, like these hot takes or social media debates, you know, oftentimes these things are all interwoven, right? It's like our belief about like what's true about the world or like facts from history or supposed facts from history. Um, and, what we think would be true in the future, right? Like our predictions and especially our predictions that are contingent on policy decisions, right? Like, oh, right. if we adopt this policy, then we'll probably get this result. And then somehow this evidence is trotted out of like, yeah, see, we adopted a policy like that and we got this other result. And there's some validity to that line of reasoning, but you're, you're also saying like, we can all kind of do this and we can kind of cherry pick are things. I mean, it's a little bit of what's super frustrating. I mean, even if you just take this kind of Keynesian versus Hayekian like economics debate, I mean, there is like the cornucopia of like, hey, look at this. See, this is why, you know, it was a, it's a blended economy and the New Deal and FDR. And that was what we had to have. Otherwise, we wouldn't freaking have the infrastructure we have now. And like, and, right. then, and well, there's no, no counterfactual. There's no counterfactual. Right. Exactly. But yeah. So like, like, what are you betting on? Right. Exactly. So I would have to go back in time and do things and the other way the to see yes. what the economic. Yeah, exactly. So when we try to debate on the past, we never have the counterfactual. We only actually have what happened and you relativize it to an ideal. Yep. That's that's another problem. Yep. You know, the great uh, Thomas Sowell, the economist, has always said there, there, there are only trade-offs. There are no solutions. There are only trade-offs. Yep. Um, it's, and it's meant to really that, – that, that's a mimetic way, a, a heuristic way of thinking that is trying to teach people that there are there, – there, no, there is no idealized policy that's going to bring about some pro-social result – and have no unintended consequences. <clears throat> yeah. So we always have to relativize the, first of all, what purported result do you think you're going to bring about, which almost never happens in policy. Uh, and then you have to make that relative to the costs and risk side of the equation, which is also exceedingly difficult 
in policy. So this is why people like uh, Philip Tetlock and, and Robin Hansen are, and I think these are card-carrying members of the rationality community. I'm certainly always impressed by them. Uh, another yep. one is Brian Kaplan. They yep. make these bets. They make yep. these best bets on probability. They, they're informed by theory. You can't, all, all, all of your, everything you're going to do in terms of prediction and forecast is going to be value laden. It's going to have your, some ideological assumptions embedded in it, whether you like it or not. Mm -hmm. But at least they temper that with some concept of like, of, of, of the empirical. So the kind of claims that they make and the kind of bets that they make are always very restricted to, to some data set at a time slice. Yep. Yep. I mean, this is, well, we, we really went, we've sort of jumped real into the deep end. It seems like to me and I want to well, see, we can back it up if you want, you know? Yeah, no, no, no. I think we got, I think teasing apart some of these things, you know, is, is important, right? Cause it's like, it almost like e even, you know, as I listen to you, I'm like, right. Like it's like the, there's almost this like magnetism or, or gravitational pull towards like, well, in, it's like the policy in the future and the past and our theories about what's true all they're interrelated and like we always want to kind of like relate them to each other and like you know i i do think this is perhaps it's an insight of postmodernism is this idea that like that we can create like a like a perfectly a perfect version of epistemic rationality independent of all instrumental rationality independent of all motivated reasoning I think that's a deep philosophical question that we're not going to be able to answer here. I mean, there is, there's definitely places where they converge. That's for sure. Right. Um, but, uh, like, I think there are some ways we can try to tease them apart. Like, I mean, you, you're like, well, we don't have a counterfactual to like, you know, what, what could have an parallel universe version of FDR done for the new deal or, or whatever. And like, and does that count as valid evidence for choosing like a big giant infrastructure spend bill now or doesn't it? Um, but I, I do sometimes think we end up with kind of natural experiments. You know, sometimes there's a, there's a funny thing that uh, you can test hypotheses by doing a thing called retro diction where you could be like, look, we have a, we've collected actually a, a data set from the past and you can sort of test a theory by making a prediction of about what you should see in that data set you know, based on like, and then you can actually do, it's kind of a funny way of doing it, but like, I think there's some validity in that we're not always stuck with, there was only just one timeline and this is, this is how it happened. I mean, in a certain sense, we kind of are right. Like we, we don't have parallel, you know, like you can imagine these alternative things, which we kind of do, you know, in these like things like, you know, the man in the high castle, right? Like what if the Nazis had won, right? These kind of different worlds, you know, we do in our sci-fi imagination, you know, which is kind of fun, you know? Um, but I, I also, I also think that we can, you know, like this is the whole idea, like why don't we set up an AB split test of a thing? Or why don't we create an, a, an experimental situation where we can iterate and, you know, reset the conditions and run it over and over again. And if you look at <clears throat> sort of like downstack science, if you look at, you know, physics, for example, like we, that is what we do, right? Like we create an experiment, we can run it hundreds, thousands of times. Right? I remember like 
you know, rolling the little steel ball down the ramp, like in high school and, you know, with my little stopwatch, oh, you could just do this, do a little scatter plot and create a curve on a thing. You're like, see, we're like, this is Newton's law of whatever. You know what I mean? Like you can do that. Uh, but unfortunately, as you kind of ratchet up the stack towards more social sciences or decision-making grounded in kind of like some kind of rationale, like a policy, hey, let's do this instead of that. And we're kind of trying to just base it off of historically what happened. We don't, we don't have a counterfactual. We can't and rewind it and rerun has changed. It. It's a complex system. I mean, yeah. the, the, the sheer scale and complexity of the U.S. economy, to just to go back to that example, today mm -hmm. is light years away from what it was during, during the, um, the New Deal, for example. And yet we have a popular national mythology. And yes, I'm making a truth claim about this or a falsity claim, actually. You know, we were, we all grew up with the idea that, that, you know, FDR got us out of the great depression, mm -hmm. right. With the new deal. Mm -hmm. And they, you know, he's lionized in the social studies books. I mean, it's just, it's just, I mean, in my view, it's just horseshit propaganda of course, he put people to work, but, the, you know, they never talk about the cost side of the equation and the fact that the unemployment rate persisted into into well into World War II um, and that the, when the, the company was uh, the, sorry, the country was at full employment. It's only because all of the men were out to overseas fighting in a war. I mean, there's just all kinds of just weirdness surrounding these questions and you can go back and unpack them endlessly. The, the thing about um, making decisions, though, into the future in a situation of complexity is rather like the have you ever heard the old there's an old. I guess you'd call it not an anecdote, but a, an allegory of of the blind men and the elephant. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And this is an allegory, you know, for listeners. It's just like imagine these uh, that every all of these these. Um, these blind men, uh, let's say there are 10 or 15 blind men around the elephant and they, none of them have ever seen an elephant before. Mm -hmm. And they finally encounter one and they're, they're touching it. Right. And they're one says, uh, well, it's got a, it's, it's, it's an elephant is hard. Um, and, and rough. And, you know, apparently this one is touching the tusk. And another mm -hmm. one says, oh, well, it's wrinkly and leathery. Another one's touching the knee. You know, so they're trying to put together this, what you might call multifaceted truth totality through yeah. limited epistemic means. And yet, as they communicate with each other, they get more and more of this. And so yes. that's, that's at least in a, in some sense, what you call weaving shared reality. Yeah. Um, it at least approaches that. With, with both history, the hindsight of history, as well as making prediction and forecast or judging the, a truth claim, a, a, cl a claim of fact in the news, you get this phenomenon of, of these fact checkers, which are absolutely hilarious in how postmodern this enterprise has become. It is just a fractal of fact checkers who are just in constant war with each other and people literally hold the fact checkers up as these as these truth warriors yeah and it's absolutely absurd you can pick their shit apart left and right if you want to 
because they're always biased. They're always partisan in both directions, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and to be someone who is pretty nonpartisan as you and I, I would say are, uh, we try to divorce ourselves from partisan narratives and truth claims. And we, and instead <clears throat> operate with a view to skepticism about partisan claims, because we know that what's in it for the partisan is different from what's in it from us not being in that system or that tribe. Yeah. It is nevertheless, even if you're, even if you try to reduce your bias by stepping outside of the partisan matrix for some truth claim, yeah, it's nevertheless still a very, very difficult hall of mirrors. Yep. Yeah. So, you know, I think we're touching on a, on a few things here that I like. One is, you know, maybe this is, this bears making really explicit, like this is how I treat the thing, you know, um, I sort of have some view. Okay. The, the truth is out there. It's like cunts, like there's a Numenon somewhere over there, right? Like it's mm-hmm. out there, right? But I can't perceive it directly. So I'm sampling across multiple sources and, you know, you know, even when I look at like, I, I do go look at a fact checker. Oh, somebody made a claim over here. Well, what does fucking Snopes say about well, that particular truth claim? But then I don't go like, and then Snopes is the Numenon, right? No, Snopes is just Snopes, right? Like it's like, I'm trying to, <laughs> put together like a constellation somebody kind of else like a, behind a computer yeah somebody know? else who's like fact checking a thing according to a certain fact checking methodology and i'm like okay cool i mean and you can kind of go in and sort of like what well, how do fact checkers do their job oh cool you can go over here and do this uh online course about like how to do fact checking and you can sort of like look at the techniques there okay how much do i trust those particular style of techniques and and i think you know in some really deep philosophical sense i think kant was right we can we'll never see that we'll never perceive the noumenon directly it's impossible and we still got to do something like collective sense making and i think to kind of go back to our early 20th century science stuff i think i think it was super weird for scientists when you know einstein and the the quantum dudes came up with the thing and they were like wait a minute we've just been relying on this newton thing as though it was the way that it was and then it was sort of like, well, how do we even make sense? Of that? And then Kuhn came along and said, well, this is this idea of like a paradigm shift. And actually these models are just models, right? There's the Newton model, there's the Einstein model, there's a the quantum model. And even these models for all of the incredible amount of predictive measurement precision and all this kind of shit that they do, which is incredible. It's like some of the most rock solid knowledge we have about our physical world. like. You're like, yeah, you know, if you input the variables over here and in a Newtonian model, you'll get a slightly different answer than the one if you put in the Einsteinian model. And you're like, but scientists don't even think of these models as like, which one is the real one anymore, right? Like you, you kind of get into this, this is like philosophy of physics kind of stuff where yeah. you're just like, look, we're just looking at it from different facets or points of view. And that's all we're ever going to be able to do. And we got to kind of just get over that and realize the postmodernists are kind of right in a certain point of view when they say is what, what they call it, knowledge production or knowledge construction, this kind of thing. It's not totally relativistic, but there is something like what we think we know, even at the downstack levels of like hard sciences, is a is the product of a socially mediated process that right. You know, it, it also it flies a little bit in the face of this 
you know, like the Galileo story, or at least the, what I took away from this high school version of, you know, the lone scientific hero, which is sometimes exactly what they were. Like Newton went off and fucking made up his shit kind of all on his, by himself, which is kind of crazy. But nevertheless, like you, even Newton's stuff had to be sort of like put into this social process of, you know, he was a little bit of a dick about it, right? People be like, huh, I wonder, blah, blah, blah. And Newton would be like, I already have the answer. And he's like, boom. And everyone was like, shit, man, he was right. And like, But there was some version of like, and Newton didn't really become official until there was some amount of this consensus that was generated through a social process. And, and I, I want to, I'm pointing to this, I'm pointing to a couple different aspects of, of knowledge, but also kind of, I want to just assert there's an intrinsically social dimension to knowledge production. We just will never be free Escape. of it. It's actually part yeah. of the process. Yes, absolutely. The, the, my two, so two of my, three of my favorite philosophers on this are WVO Quine, Donald mm -hmm. Davidson, and uh, Richard Rorty. Mm -hmm. um, all for different reasons. They have some similarities, some differences, but um, the, I think what, what they all share is this idea. Quine has this great saying, the human predicament is the human predicament. <laughs> Okay, which is to say, Hume was basically saying human skepticism, right? Right. He's in the Enlightenment. He's saying everything, and the, you know, Kant tries to really wrestle with this later on. But he's 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 basically saying, look, you can't stand outside of your own skin, ever. It is it is the phenomenon. It is the phenom the phenomenal all the way down. Your noumena is something that you can never ever have access to. You That's are right. locked in your subjectivity completely locked. And of course, the, Qu the, the Quinians and the Donald Davidson types and, and so on come out and say, well, we can start playing language games, you know, after, after Wittgenstein, right? We can, we, can, we can start talking to each other. And, and there is this, there's this kind of regress problem, or at least this mutual solipsism in the idea of intersubjectivity. I am a subject. You and I are trying to weave shared reality right now in our conversation. And yet we're always going to be mediated by the fact that you are a subject and exist in the ma your matrix of subjectivity. I exist in the matrix of my subjectivity. And the only shared aspect between us is through the conduit of language. Mm -hmm. Now we can be solipsist all day long. And I could even say, how do I know that there's another mind there? Right. But that's a different right. question. It's right. a different epistemic question. What we're concerned about is existence of tables and chairs and and quarks and other scientific phenomena, especially in the social science, which which get really, really vague and really difficult to unpack. Um, and so I, I hope you'll permit me to steer us there in the form of a question. Sure. Um. Because I think in the social sciences, this is quite pronounced. And it's not to say that some of the hard, that the hard sciences are immune. But when we set about doing social sciences, we have peer review, we have um, replication, we have all of these methodologies to say, hey, you have this, uh, these methodologies that are purported to be based on the scientific method. You're gathering data and right there, data gathering is a reduction 
of a phenomenon in nature that is highly complex to a single dimension represented by a number. Yep. That reduction right there, it makes a limitation that very few people want to talk about. The whole process of data gathering can be completely fraught. So yep. then you have this, okay, now I'm making a scientific claim based on this data with this, this group of people, how different they are one to the next, how diverse they are could be, could, could yield different answers in different contexts of the methodology applied. But here's our first approximation of this. This is what the study says. And it's now it's published and it's in a journal and yep. everybody, and everybody goes, yay. All the journalists and the idiots out there, including me <laughs> goes, science says, science says X, Y, Z. And of course, science yeah. isn't a person. Science is being represent. Science is being the scientific enterprise in a specific domain of inquiry with a specific methodology on a specific question is being stewarded by individual people who are working together in this enterprise. Yep. And all of them are locked in that human matrix of subjectivity. Yeah. Well, whew. Covered a lot of ground there. I love it, dude. We're, I love our conversations, Max. So I love going towards the social sciences. This is, this is exactly where we need to go for a number of reasons. One of which is, you know, we in this, you know, to the degree we're still in, in the modern era or we're still in a kind of like a scientific framework in terms of how we think we know about the world, right? We want to, like we, to, to appeal to the studies, like the science says this and the science says that. And Right. Like we're, it, you're not going to see a politician or, or, or a social theorist or an activist appeal to, you know, Newton versus Einstein to like talk about what policies we should be implementing. No, we're trying to make the argument in terms of something that's popping out of these softer sciences, whatever you want to call them. Right. Like there's psychology and there's sociology and there's social psychology, which kind of tries to interconnect the two. And there's a whole bunch of economics also. And like, <laughs> there's a sociology of economics and the economics of sociology. And it's like, we don't really have even a coherent freaking framework. We just have these certain analytic devices that we're applying. And then we're like, man, but it's like, this is not, we know enough to know that this is not doing anything even remotely as solid as like what Newton and Einstein are doing. Maybe we can never get there. Maybe there's actually some, some problem because we're trying to like, I don't know, study ourselves. We're trying to like put a microscope or a telescope back on ourselves and, and look at human behavior. And maybe there's some, something like, uh, I've thought about this. Like what if, uh, there's like, you know, the quantum measurement problem, like the, you know, the Schrodinger's cat, is it alive or is it dead? Or you, when you perceive it, it changes, right? This kind of yeah, idea. Heisenberg. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what I think there's a, there's a Heisenberg principle, like a, a, a of social science, right? Like, totally. like you cannot take a thing <laughs> and instrument back onto society without changing it. Like this is the criticism of like cultural, cultural anthropology in a way. It's like, you're going to put a person in there. You're going to have your little, you know, white man deep in the jungle, sort of like right jotting down some notes and like, I'm observing this tribe in their natural state. You're like, no, you're not. Cause you're there, right? Like they're not in a natural state anymore because they know you're over there under your fucking tent writing notes about them. So they're changing how they're behaving because of your presence. And like, I mean, there's so many fundamental issues even before we get to crazy things like the replication crisis, but like this, this idea of, you know, th this might sort of sound a little 
depressing or even nihilistic in, in how I'm describing it, but I'm just trying to point out some of like the fundamental things that are just to grapple with in these softer sciences. And even medicine is one of them that is like, it's almost the quintessential one because it's like, um, it's like a doctor, you know, a medical doctor must intervene, right? That's what they're there for. They're there to like do something, right? Like, but if you're in the operating room or you're in the emergency room or you're in whatever, you're like, look, I don't have time. This person is going to die. We don't have time to like prove with like medical science what the fucking cause is right here fundamentally. I got to make a call because the person's bleeding out, right? Like, and, and that that situation of the of the doctor kind of expanded outwards. Like all of medical research is kind of in this state that sort of straddles between, you know, fact and policy, right? And like, this is why we have so many weird medical <laughs> catastrophes or iatrogenic interventions that like, you know, cause more harm than they did good or, or why we get, you know, like, um, who is that? Who's that Greek dude? Who, do, do, Ionidas, they kind of published that very famous, like why most or half of all medical research is false. You know what I mean? Like this was like, like yeah, I, I know exactly who you're talking about. He's been really good on, on the COVID yeah. uh, stats too. Yeah. Um, I, I would consider him to be, um, one, what, uh, Philip Tetlock calls a, a Fox. Mm -hmm. Um, he's, he's very good at very careful or Julia Geff's, uh, Galef's scout mentality, scout yes. mindset, right? Yep. Which is basically, you know, saying, let's wait and see, let's gather more data points, more evidence to establish with humility, a set of probabilities that balance against each other. Yeah. And, and don't rush it. Of course, as you say, in the hospital room, in a hospital room and in, in a surgical theater, sometimes you have to just make a judgment call. Right. Um, but hopefully that judgment call is informed by years of medical science and all of the good stuff that goes into what we think of as pretty solid foundations, multiple surgeries, outcomes of those surgeries. Uh, but also it, we hope in medical science journals having methodologies that limb or yield some sort of accurate picture of reality in the human body. But this is the other thing about human bodies versus human minds. When you go to psychology and you're talking literally about the way you're talking, there's some substratum there, which is that substratum is, is the human brain and the way the brain, the neurons fire and all of this kind of stuff. Yep. So there is a, a physicalist substrate there that we want to acknowledge, but it is not everything. Every not everything is reducible to it. Um yep. at least not in a at least not in a way where we can where we wouldn't want to send someone who needs therapy to a neuroscientist. Exactly. Exactly. We have to deal with patterns at certain levels of description on their own levels of description. And yet the interplay between those levels of description can be extremely problematic in our understanding. We can get quacks who don't respect the physical substrate, and we can get physicalists who don't respect the therapeutic approaches. And yes. that, that those two disciplines talking to each other is, as people specialize, you can sometimes get less of that. And that's not good. Right. Um, yep. So 
the the problem of like the rep, you know replication crisis that kind of um problem is is more than the a methodological problem it is it is also a philosophical problem it is and i think you know the way science gets funded um and the desire to want to have certainty and always have certainty that there be some monolith that that extends up to the sky and has truth inscribed in it and we can all just go look at that monolith and its inscriptions to find truth is wrong-headed we don't live in that world anymore it's gone we never did really we just sort of believed in the myth that we did exactly we we improved on our religion <laughs> yeah it's an artifact on of modernity in a way i mean it, it, yeah. it is if we are saying that like we're we're past modernism and in po into postmodernism, and then maybe we're going into something else like integral or metamodernism. We have to account for this thing, right? Like even even that myth, the, that modernist myth that we've kind of like, you know, there are these fundamental facts of the matter or the laws of physics are like really there in a concrete way and, and they're not just models, right? But I want to I want to jump to a slightly different thing real quick with you because I think this is, this kind of goes way over to like, you know, what I do for a living and it's really kind of fun. Like, and this is intersubjectivity mm -hmm. and re relational practice and communication. Cause it's like, this is my sweet spot. I, I love talking about this and we can, we'll, we'll circle back to like facts and truth and journalism and, and science in a minute, but let, you know, let's, you know, let's go over to like, just even the domain of intimate relationships. This is like, this is a kind of a, a funny one, but if you think about it, it's like, what's your relationship status, right? You, you've got a girlfriend, you've got a mm -hmm. yep. woman you live with. That's right. right? You just guys, you guys just had a baby together, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, <clears throat> if I were to think by like, how do I come to know what is the status, relationship status of Max and his partner, right? I, I, I wouldn't pull out a microscope or a ruler or any kind of measuring device and go to anywhere in physical reality to try to measure that. What I would do is I'd say, Hey Max, you know, are are you in a a, a partnership, a, a romantic partnership? And you would say yes, and then I would go over to her and I'd say, "Hey, are you are you in a romantic partnership with Max?" And she'd be like, "Yes." And then I'd be like, "Cool. Therefore, they are in a romantic partnership together." Right? That is the fact of the matter. It's built out of essentially your utterances about the state of some social condition between the two of you. And that's all that it is. Right? You know, when the, when the minister says, I now pronounce you man and wife or husband and wife or whatever they say, that, that speech act is what creates it. Do you know what I'm saying? Like yeah, that it's a socially is, constructed, constructed reality. It's a, it's yes, it's it. And it only exists in a sense in the social construction of it. Like it's, it's a little bit different than saying, you know, science about like, you know, molecules and atoms, you know, it's not like the science of molecules and atoms is built strictly out of utterances, right? It's mediated through our utterances, but there's a whole dimension of our world that's just purely intersubjective, right? Almost entirely. It is built out of our utterances that, and that's kind of it. And this, the weaving shared reality process, if you look at it in the domain where, you know, I kind of worked with the uh, creators of like, um, you know, authentic relating, and now it's in my meta relating practices is uh it's relational 
right? It, it's a bit of us trying to come to an understanding or trying to essentially fill in our minds in a sense where we are confirming that we have a mutual understanding about one of these, you might say, non-physical things, these kind of like the status of a social thing. And, you know, I know that, you know, if, if I said, oh no, I'm totally, I'm totally with her and we're totally together. And you went and talked to her and she was like, I don't know what he's talking about. We are totally not together. What would you think of me, Max? If I said that and she's like, no, you're, we're not together. I'm like, no, we're totally together. And she's like, no, we're not together. What would you think of me? Oh, I would. Yeah. I would think that was that you were delusional or something. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and I would say, no, 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 it's a fact. It's objective. You would be like, what are you talking about? Porch? The status of a relationship is not an objective fact. It's an intersubjective fact basically, or an intersubjective thing. We can imagine this is, <laughs> I love, I, I don't want to get into the Gettier problem, but, um, that's, a, that's another one for another episode. We got to get into sure. that sometime. Sure. But I do like the, the idea that maybe, okay, let's say you're in a relationship with someone and, uh, no, not, let's not do that because I don't want you to have to imagine someone cheating on you. Um, <laughs> let's, let's say, let's say in, in, in interpersonal relationship, there's a couple and uh -huh. they are together. They've agreed to yeah. be in the relationship and both leave for work that morning and say, um, you know, that they're together and they acknowledge that someone asked them that in that morning and they agree, yes, they're, they're in a relationship and they have been for two years or whatever. Um, now in, in the after the guy goes to work, this really beautiful woman comes up to him at work and says, are you in a relationship? And he says, no, she has every, he has every reason. I'm sorry. She has every reason to believe what he's saying, but he's, right. he's motivated by the possibility that maybe she's hitting on him because she's attractive. Right. Yeah. And he's going to be a cheater. Um, mm -hmm. And so um, if let's say for some reason she comes into the office and someone says, oh, that's that's his girlfriend. And she goes up to the to the girlfriend and says, hey, are you two in a relationship? Are you in a relationship with that guy over there? And and she says, yes. Then she has gotten more data. Right. And is probably of the, uh, you know, either surmises that they're going through a, a time of uncertainty or that he's a liar and a cheater. And right. probabilistically speaking, she would probably be right. And the more data points she's able to gather, the more she's able to, to, to sketch out that particular elephant in her mind. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, so now with, but in relational practices, just between two people, there are times when people argue and have disputes. And this is just two people. We're not talking about mass, mass scale society. We're only right. talking about two people who yes. can't agree about something very simple. Who yeah. perceived an event in the past, for example, 
about which they're fighting very in two very different ways. And yes. it's almost like the that they're they're in but through the a healthy process of meta relating are trying to arrive at the truth about what went wrong rather than yes. the truth in question. Yes. Is that fair? Yeah, when we're weaving yeah, no, totally. If we keep it strictly on the interpersonal level, I mean this and this is great, and this is gonna it's gonna go into the social dimension really quick, like in the aggregate collective dimension. But if it's just you and me, right? Like, oh, that was weird. What happened there? And then I'm like, if I if I if I enact a certain protocol, right? I, I could do one protocol, which is just like <laughs> this is like gaslighting you. No, Max, you're wrong. This is what happened. And you're like, you know, but I think this happened, Porch. And you're like, and I'm like, no, Max, you're wrong. This is what happened. And I I just get louder or, or whatever. I say more words. And I mean, you know, and eventually maybe you might be like, okay, okay. I think you're right. <laughs> like that that's a certain kind of protocol. Some people use this, right? Some people, it's a little bit of a power over, a kind of a dominance strategy to kind of like assert yeah. power about what's the truth about what's happened between the two of us. And, you know, there's there's trade-offs. I don't, I don't want to behave that way with people that I respect, but like, I mean, you can, I suppose if you don't care about respecting them. And there's right? a submission like, instinct there yes, in a lot yes. of people. Yeah. I don't have that gene, by the way. No, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> but a lot of people do. Uh, and by the way, my baby mama does not have that gene either. And so uh, frequently in our interactions, we dig in our heels um, and applying metal relating practices of the sort that you have shared with me as my friend has been really beneficial in our relationship yeah. because we are look, and I'm not saying that it's healthy for a relationship to have one, one person have a submission instinct either no. or a dominance instinct. What I'm saying right. is that whether you have that instinct or not, um, meta relating is just going to rise above that. Yes. I, I agree. And I think this is, you know, I I'm here just really promoting a certain, you might say it's a discourse ethic when it comes to relational communication. And that's what meta relating basically is fundamentally, but like to, to kind of get into it, like, you know, I think there's a way that even in our organizational life, this idea of feedback, it, it has become sort of really corroded, right? It's almost like, um, like the manager goes like, I'm going to give you feedback, which means, well, I'm going to tell you about what that was like for me so that, you know, and now you're supposed to just account for it that way. Or maybe you kind of have in your more enlightened organizations, like, you know, oh, the bosses, the people in power, they're supposed to welcome and embrace all the feedback. And then people kind of go like, hey, bosses, I have a feedback for you. And then the boss is supposed to be like, mm -hmm, yes, yes, validate the feedback, validate, the, like a unidirectional thing. I'm mm -hmm. like saying, no, 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 this is broken. Weaving shared reality is like, hey, I want to share with you, this is what I observed, this is what I was intending, this is what I said and did, this is what you said and did that I perceived. This is what I made that mean. And I want, and like, and this is how I felt about it. I'm not, I don't want to like, and I want you to know that, but then I also am saying, Hey dude, what was happening for you? What were you thinking? What were you making that mean? And then you share that. And now we've, what we've done is in our discourse, we've kind of put some of our subjectivity into the intersubjective space. And now we can kind of compare and contrast, right? It's actually, this is what a good couples counselor will do and help you do if you suck at doing this with your partner. They'll be like, okay, so like now, do you think, do, do I really think that like my version of events is just like, no, that's what happened. And now I'm just going to go correct their mistakes or vice versa. No, actually what's going to happen is like, 
oh shoot, I didn't really realize that when I said or did this, you made it mean that. But now I'm updating my own map of what happened, but you can do that too. And if we're both kind of bought into this style of discourse of weaving shared reality, you know, we may never get to like total agreement, but we, maybe we will. And that's often, if, if there is a possibility of like near total agreement, this procedure gets you there, right? Like, but if you, you know, it, it also is likely for you to just uncover and create more of that shared reality, which is really that social reality we're talking about, right? Like there's no measurement device. There's no place you go out there and like, look at it, you know, objectively speaking, right? It's created. It's not just observed. It's created through the discourse. Like we're creating what we now both believe had did happen or transpire between the two of us, what our misunderstanding was and what the nature of that misunderstanding was. And that's social yeah. reality. It's a part of social reality. And it's, it's not to say that it's not hard, but it is no. a, it is a process. It, it, at least it's a, a set of protocols. You not only don't deny the emotional and values baggage that goes into it, you're required to import it and, and to inquire and invite the other person to do the same. Yes. Now there are a lot of, now, and this is not I'm not I'm not trying to make the claim that this should scale to society because it can't for various reasons. Right. But what what about a localized meta relating practice, the kind that you are paid handsomely to help within companies? Yeah. How can what can you take from that framework to improve collective intelligence at scale? This is exactly where I want to get to. So, I mean, I think there's maybe there's what I'm thinking of right now is there's two ways. Like one way is in a way you can sort of treat weaving shared reality a bit like um, doing science in the intersubjective realm where we're trying to uncover like what happened, right? Like what happened, right? Let's figure this out. Let's get clearer. And like, if we do that, we actually enable our, you know, our relationship to be more functional. And, and I think if you can have, I think some of the people who are trying to do like, um, you know, what, what do they call it? like transpartisan dialogue, like, you know, like the better angels people or some of these other people that are trying to kind of convene spaces where, Hey, we can have come with real differences of opinion and have a discourse where we really understand the, the detailed nature or some of the rationality, uh, kind of conversational protocols, like the idea of the double crux, like, or like, let me steal man your position. You steal my yeah, man. Steel steel man yeah, steal man. Yeah. Yeah. And now, now we can discover, oh, what is the crux of our actual disagreement? Oh, it's because like there's some, you know, so there's like a network of beliefs and we actually first sort of discovered, oh, the key disagree, the key thing that would, if it flipped one way, we would agree. Or if we flipped the other way, we would agree. Like, I think these techniques, uh, when we're talking about more objective things, like are, are, are similar to weaving shared reality. Um, so I think that's one thing, you know, Hey, what happened? Like, can we figure out what happened and, and get on the same page about that? Um, but I think also there's another, the other side of it is this you're, and this is, this kind of touches into interesting things like, you know, the nature of money and cryptocurrency, right? Like what the fuck is money anyway? Well, it's basically <laughs> the cryptocurrency has value because we all say that it has value period. Like that's what fiat is, right? Like the, and in a way, some of these, you know, societal 
constructs exist because we believe that they exist, right? You yeah. know, we, we like to say like, you know, like just, you know, this person, you know, we, we call that a murder when we get a conviction of murder out of a jury. And then we say, yes, that person murdered that person. Now you might believe that they murdered them, but it almost like we're updating a social fact that they murdered yes. them. And like, that is an output of, Hey, there was a judge and there was a, you know, there was a defense and there was a prosecution and they made their arguments and this jury went off and then they came back. And then when they came back, they said, this is the verdict. And then now society says, yes, the defendant did commit murder or the defendant did not commit murder. Right. Like, and that social fact is we just sort of say like, is the output of that protocol, that social protocol creates that social fact. And I think this is another way to think about this is the, the, the discourse norms, or you might say the protocol for the exchange of communication, whatever it might be, whether you're doing kind of good couples counseling or good meta relating or something else, like it doesn't just uncover social facts. It can create social facts that we cohere our behavior around, right? These are coordination artifacts in our inner subjectivity. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yet part of the problem with the postmodern condition is we know that some social facts are better than others. <laughs> the postmoderns would thing. deny that the metamodern yeah. is going to say, no, no, there's something to this. Uh, yeah. Not sure why. Let me give you an example. Um, let me give you a couple of examples because yeah. Um, realizing all the while that from a ph philosophical perspective that this is this is problematic but intuitively there we know that there's some you know we know that there's something there I, I maybe maybe at least i can persuade you of this okay let's see yeah all right so first of all there's a whole set of questions about the moral political idea of proportionality to some event okay we have uh -huh. In society, we have a phenomenon that uh, I think I mentioned it on another podcast that Cass Sunstein and Timur Kuren um, came up with called an availability heuristic or availability cascade. And that is something, something bad happens in the media. Something bad happens. The media shines a light on it as a, an individual phenomenon that gets shared through the memosphere and, along with a narrative. Okay. Okay, we just saw the trial uh, at this point in time of of Derek Chauvin. Mm -hmm. uh, he was guilty on all counts of murdering uh, this this man, George, George Floyd. Floyd, and George Floyd, uh, and the and and the story of George Floyd, and this happened all on camera, so from multiple angles, so we got all kinds of video of this horrific Acts. crime, and yeah. I and I I'm. I'm of the mind that, yeah, that, that, that these crimes were committed, uh, you know, I don't know if, um, of uh, the details of the law in the state of Minnesota, but generally speaking, I think it's dead to rights guilty, right? Mm -hmm. Me too. Um, and, and yet when George Floyd happened, there mm -hmm. was this mass movement, okay, where people are riding in the streets in multiple cities. So it's not just riding in this one city. It's riding right. in all the major cities. It's and the narrative is has gone from here is an instance of police brutality to a narrative of uh this is an instance this is not just an instance of 
police brutality, but a ref a single instance of a wider racist white supremacist br police brutality epidemic that is completely um uh, that is all over the country. So here we have an un virtually unfalsifiable claim. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But if you actually dig into the data on the crime statistics, we have, of course, as I mentioned earlier, to be very skeptical of how those data are gathered and by whom they're gathered, because the data gatherers are also the people who are going to be evaluated on that data, namely the police. So that's problematic, yeah. but, and it's going to be imperfect, but there are certain aspects that are inescapable in those data. Okay. So you mm -hmm. can give it some wiggle room, but you can't give it too much wiggle room. And so you, when you get into the crime statistics on police brutality, you see, you see very, it, it's pretty easy statistically to realize that there is not racist, a, a racist white conspiracy on the part of police or, or, or unconscious bias or any other vague or vacuous claim you want to make yeah. that would would bring about this level or disproportional response to the event. Yeah. Okay. So if I were to be a Fox, I would go and I'd say, okay, let's look at the data. What did the yeah. data show? Uh, what is the, how many, how many, uh, what interracial violence, what does that look like? Mm -hmm. Right. And this is, people are going to say, oh, well, you can't, how can you talk about races? <clears throat> it's like, well, th these, this is what we have, right? People self-identify as black, white, this or that, you know, person of color or whatever. Um, generally speaking, we have these racial categories that are, are indeed problematic, yep. but at the end of the day, <clears throat> There is no universe in which you assert a fact. People are asserting through brute force of creating a socially constructed reality that America is irredeemably racist, that all problems terminate in white supremacy. Yeah. Right? It's just like the unfalsifiable claims of the Marxists uh, in the 20th century, right? Which is that the there there will eventually be a dictatorship of the pro proletariat and they're being exploited by the capitalist class and all this other stuff when it never happened they said it was false consciousness same thing it's the same kind patterns of not thinking but just claims without any evidence and yeah. evidentiary tools tools of reason <clears throat> and tools of good discourse including those fouls logical fallacies that you mentioned mm -hmm. at the beginning of the show are all missing and are taken out by the postmodern slash critical theorists yes. in this day and age. And it has allowed them to create a social reality that is inferior to the to that noumenon we know is there, which is that there is yes. some racism, it's isolated, and this, that, and the other, yeah. uh, but the response can't be proportional. Uh, our poli yes. it misses this whole other areas of inquiry on policy for policing. Um, the, it misses a whole bunch of people who are being victimized by police who are of different races than yep. black. And so we've, it's, it's essentially created this master narrative that is what you might call a statistical falsehood. It is an intersubjective yep. agreement that all millions of people, 
millions and millions of people have that is in some some sense false but how to how to describe that falsehood is difficult dude this is <laughs> we're, we're in a right smack in a hot topic and maybe even a contentious topic maybe even contentious between you and me let's see okay but i would i, I want to use this particular example to tease apart a few things one is this uh idea that um there's, there's almost like a, 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 a social fact or one of these quasi social facts that is being generated by essentially like a mass feedback loop of rhetoric, right? Of like, yes, the availability. Derek Chauvin committed cascade. murder. Joe, Derek Chauvin committed murder, right? And, you know, it was caused by systemic racism. It caused by systemic racism. It's like, well, if enough people repeat that enough times, it becomes true because enough people believe that it's true. And then you're sort of saying, yes, but that's leaving out this other stuff where it's like, we actually do have social science studies about criminology. And we have some statistics over here about what these relative frequencies are. And we should also be including that, right? And it's like, there's these, almost these two different styles of discourse that are kind of happening. Yes. And I, what I wanna do is point a couple things out. One is, uh, well, it sort of depends on achieving some shared reality about the discourse norms themselves, right? Like, oh, yes, what, which to me is, you know, my, my favorite theorist on this is Jürgen Habermas, who's I can't believe he's still alive. He's just like the most ancient dude. And he he goes all the way back to the Frankfurt School of Critical Theory. But he himself was not, you know, he he was a defender of the Enlightenment. He actually took on the postmodernists in the 80s. Uh, but his idea here of like communicative rationality, I think is really appropriate because he's basically saying like our, our ability to have a free society, our ability to continue the enlightenment project, like actually depends on something like we have shared reality about what the proper discourse ethics are like the, the norms that govern the way that we communicate. So this is sort of saying like, you know, if we kind of go to this example, which version counts better, right? Does, does this kind of like sober social science you statistics just speak, count? speaking the language of whiteness right now. <laughs> Maybe I am. I mean, I, I'm kidding. I'm, ki I'm kidding, but I'm not. I mean, this is exactly what Aud the poet Audre Lorde said. She said, mm -hmm. if you know, these are the tools that built the master's house. Yep. The master being whitey. Okay. The white, the white power white patriarchy you cannot employ in in rebuilding the new more utopian whatever it is you can't employ the tools of the master you can't use the tools in the master's house and what that is saying is that rationality reason discourse norms empiricism uh evidence statistics all of these means of trying to weave shared reality that yep. these are taken off the table and and replaced with power and political power assertions this is this is the uh this is the problematic aspect of what of how you you're not you're not even weaving shared reality you're just you're just uh, what are, what are you doing in the in the well, case where you just let me let me tease this like you're there's a little uh i don't want to accuse you of bad faith but there's there's a certain bias in your interpretation of this particular one but let's let's just give it its due but i actually kind of want to get to something 
it's, I think it's, it's a little more it's fair racial minded. bias too. It, sure, sure. You're a white guy. I'm, I'm southern. I'm white. Yeah, and, yeah. And I'm on the you defensive. Can't, you, you can't. You can't escape. You're on the defensive. Yeah. Um, but let you know this is a little bit analogous, right? It's like the couple has a fight, and the one one person in the couple goes like, "Nah, this is what happened," and you're like, "But I don't think so." And I'm like, "No, this is what," right? Like that style of like. Yeah, well, statistics is just white supremacy. Yeah, empiricism is white supremacy. Rationality is white supremacy. Like all those studies, white supremacy, right? It's like, we're just going to say this louder and over and over and over. But guess what? That actually is, if I were to kind of give it its due to a certain degree, I would say like that is, that's a style of discourse that's creating a certain kind of shared reality based on those kind of norms. I don't think Habermas would like those. I don't think I would like those. You know, I know George Orwell wouldn't like those either, right? Like this is the the style of creating shared reality, which is just like fucking just, you know, beat people over with like what like thought reform you need to have to get them to all at least agree enough that we're like, okay, this is okay. This is, we're, we're in this reality where this is the way that it is, right? It's a tool of authoritarians. It's a tool of sociopathic abusers. Let's just put that aside for a second. I actually want to get to something that is more interesting to me, which is let let's, I think there are good faith arguments on this side. And some of this actually has to do with some of the stuff that you, we were talking about earlier, which is methodological issues in the social sciences. You, you just talked about like, how do you even measure a thing, right? You know, you, you alluded to this idea. Well, like if you actually go into social science methodology, there's, there's encoding, right? It's like, well, how do we code for that? It's like, well, if the, you know, if you're looking at the transcript of the interviewer and they say the interview and they say something like this, you code it in this way, right? It's like this kind of reductionism, right? You're turning something sort of soft and squishy into like a quasi objective measurement exactly. because like, what else, what else are we fucking doing? Right. And like, we go over here to criminological statistics and like, Same I problems. think it's a mis I think it's a mistake to treat the entire edifice. We can go in there and go like, but look, you know, the initiation of things doesn't have a difference along along racial lines here or there, the way that the the whatever the woke mob wants to say that it does. But but the um I think the I'm just imagining somebody on the socially progressive side that still embraces something like a liberal progressivism. I would simply say, like, look, criminology statistics are actually suffering some from some methodological bias in terms of A, which studies are even being done. B, how those studies are choosing to encode certain things. It's almost like saying, hey, there's a bunch of sociological dark matter in there that if you really love all of your statistical empiricism methodology, you should go and like point the microscope at it. And I'm willing to I'm willing to take a bet that if you did, you would actually start uncovering some shit that is currently not revealed by studies as they exist. Now, I, that's a that's a claim, right? And if we were doing some kind of prediction market here. You know, I would, I would be willing to bet, like, I think, for example, vagrancy laws, vagrancy laws are like vaguely defined enough that they could just be fucking selectively enforced and you kind of get this thing. So yeah, I do think there's probably some racial biasing in terms of how vagrancy laws are enforced. Maybe there's already statistics about that. Maybe there's not, but like this idea that, you know, it, you know, the Sam Harris's of the world, like, like to kind of, Hey, we're getting into this criminological. Well, let's actually examine where we do have data where we have pointed the flashlight. Do we uncover the racial biases in the statistics that we currently have? 
And if the answer is kind of no, I don't think we just go like, see, right? I actually think we could think you got to actually do that kind of like good rationality, which is like outside view. Well, what, what is currently not being studied or are those studies replicable or what's the methodology by which those things are being encoded? That's sure. Those kinds and, of and, and we started the show by pointing out all of these things and you can't be, you can't be super biased in your selection of which ones are tainted and which ones are not. So, sure. and that's, and if you're pointing that at me, that's absolutely right. And I acknowledge that, you know, yeah. I acknowledge that I am skeptical of, I'm skeptical of statistics. I'm skeptical of data sets. I'm skeptical yep. of data collection and methodology. And yet I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater because I yep. know that we all in some sense have to rely on these for uh, weaving collective shared reality. Um, yes. So of course I want to see those improved. Now there are some things in there that are very hard to fudge or to misinterpret or to have methodological breakdown, like yep. counting dead bodies. Exactly. People who have been murdered. You know, yeah. if, if somebody's lying on the ground and they died of a heart attack uh, two seconds before they were hit by a bullet, yes, we might, we might miss them in the de in the death statistics in the murder rate but, or whatever. But, but even even there, cause of death encoding is fucking done by the examiner and like. Even you're like counting bodies, murder. And I'm like, those are not the same, right? There's like a body that's dead. That body is dead. Yeah, but when if the it's murder, that's actually a legal ruling. That the, the right? right? It's kind of like death by bullet wound is exactly what you're gonna get encoded at that layer, right? Oh, it's 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 the same way that people try to say that the United States uh has a lower birth rate. Uh that, that the birth rate, I'm sorry, the uh infant mortality rate is higher in the United States than in other places. Um, because they, they count stillbirths and live births differently in different countries. It's a, it's a coding error. Yes. And, and or difference, difference. And, and, and God, I mean, the way people die, the manner of death and the, the, the sort of the imprimatur of justice on the, on those, uh, events is, is, as you say, uh, really difficult. And yet there we have to also acknowledge that, look, there's enough there that even if, I mean, like, there's there's some wiggle room in this stuff, but there can't be so much that it is utterly contrived or, I mean, like, it is a mitigating factor to consider crime data in, in, in all of this stuff in order to form some sort of proportional response. So I'm not saying that that data or those data are perfect. In fact, we started the show by saying these kind of, you know, these kind of soft sciences are deeply problematic. And yes, it's like the, the, and there's inherent vagueness. How, how do, when is someone bald? Right. Versus right? balding. Are they, you know, they're balding, <laughs> but is, are, when are they bald? Is that like the 200 and, is 77th hair or 278th hair, you know, that they actually yeah. get to be bald. You know, a lot of times the world has this kind of vagueness and we're, we're just doing line. We're doing line yes. drawing activity around Over. our, our, around our epistemology. Totally. I mean, especially when you're talking about the soft and squishy world of social fact, and this is where I want to 
there's some part of me that just wants to really hit this. We haven't like nailed this for the listener of just how fucking crazy this is. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't please do not fall into a pit of despair, but you should at least be peering over the edge into despair. Not only is the issue of just like, oh, we don't choose the same encoding or the stats don't necessarily cover all the things or the, we can't replicate the things. Not only that, social facts are generated. Like, are we in a committed relationship together? Yes, we are. Yes, we are. That's what makes it true. And this is what's sort of weird about like policy choices, right? In, in a way, you know, it's, it's not just like, you know, the policy is the cause and the effect is the sociometrics we measured later. There's a causative thing, right? Like that's being created by the fucking narrative. Like if enough people are buying into the narrative, you know, here's one that you poke at in your books and stuff is like this idea that like elections are a way of aggregating the will of the people yeah and preferences that's a story that is one that like you know it is a social very, fact that is totally and utterly wrong but it's the social fact that we have all fucking bought into most most or people, not, not so everybody, many but enough people. people. Yes, so many people. It's a transpartisan buy-in we have of that. Yeah, and I think, yeah. and 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 just to not to put too fine a point on it, I think democracy is a big old shit show spectacle. You know, <laughs> I I use the term you "cry your teardrop in the ocean and expect the tide to turn." That yeah. is what your vote means, and. I and we we have this idea that if you know like we have hundreds of millions of people on one side and hundreds of millions of people on the other and just because there's a little bit more on this side that somehow this is how we establish another social fact on top of this already fraught and problematic social fact of elections it's yep. like yo this is just the way we do things man you know, it's right. like, it's like my, my Jewish uh, baby mama is always talking about, you know, like having Christmas break. It's just like Christmas is just a social fact that comes around each year and it just kind of plops itself right. into our lives. And we hear the fucking Christmas music all the time. And she's like, ah, yeah, I'm a Jew, you know, uh. <laughs> like, I, I don't yeah. care about this. And in, and in fact, it, I'm slightly it can irritate her and I can see why. I mean, hell, yeah. you know, certain amount of Christmas music irritates me too. And I, you know, I'm, I'm just a non-believer. Um, but I also like Christmas, certain things about Christmas and she will admit to liking it too, but it, it is still a social fact. It's almost inescapable. Even if it's been, if it's been ripped of a lot of its religious dimension and remains this sort of secular social fact it rolls around every year it's an unstoppable force in america right. yeah it has causal power in oh, our yeah. physical world this fucking social fact like these social facts have gravity we've we've talked a little bit about this in i think in our in our very first episode where we talked about social reality and social evolution is like social facts themselves even if they're non-physical can have causal force in the physical world like mm -hmm. Christmas is a really great example or elections is another one, but I want to, I want to, I want to weave in something you said, I think we were preparing for this talk that could be related to this. You, 
you, you said there's a difference in the collective intelligence of the sense in the sense that like, was that famous book? Was it I pencil or something like this? Mm -hmm. Who wrote that one? Yeah. Yeah. Like there's nobody or Leonard the toaster Reed. idea. Leonard Reed. Okay. This idea that there is no person who understands how to make a pencil. Right. And there probably never will be. And yet we, you know, a pencil is a, a fairly simple artifact that we all are very familiar with. And we create, you know, we've created trillions of pencils, you know, <laughs> over the history of the pencil. And somehow our social and economic processes take this knowledge that has been kind of smeared about and aggregates it into an object, an object that you can use that you can use. Right. And we don't have shared reality in the, in the way that I use that term, like, Hey, what happened there? Oh, this is what yes. happened here. And this is how I did it. And this is how you did it. And this is how I did. It. Okay, cool. And we all, it's not like we created a giant conference room where we took the miners and the, the wood people and the lumberjacks and the everybody and like, <laughs> had them talk to each like, other like we don't have talk to each other we, we don't go no, to pencil no, church all, on sunday right we understand <laughs> how the pencil happens right we don't we don't have to do that we can actually like let it kind of be partially aggregated but there is some it's a fra they're like fragments of a a, a a truth totality yeah they're, they're, the fragments are themselves truths right yeah like how to how, how to um extract the rubber from the rubber plant or yep. um mining graphite you know these are all very specific activities and involve a whole lot of people and they have very highly specialized uh ways of dealing with these resources that go into making the pencil mm -hmm. but each of those shards is its own has its own truth value otherwise you wouldn't be able to construct the pencil at all it would fail that's right now I want to, I want to see what you think of this. I'm, I'm going to try to weave together a few things here. And like, this is, feels like a bit of a novel kind of synthesis, even as I'm saying it, like we've also talked about, you know, like the election thing, like even if we have like grossly different ideas, you know, on team red versus team blue, most of the people on team red and team blue share this underlying USA, like this underlying mythos of the yes. liberal representative democracy. We all yep. buy that thing. This procedure that we're doing is somehow aggregating our beliefs. Well, so they in that all sense, do not we, cause I'm not in that. Sure. <laughs> I'm sure you're not. I in mean, that and week. that's no, no, I, and, and I'm and I've made a, a, a bit of a cottage industry out of being a skeptic in that regard. But, but yeah. when you say we, in terms of some amorphous American collective that yes. creates a social fact, abso-fucking-lutely, yep. it is abso unstoppable. Right. Totally. So what I want to say, let's go to the pencil thing now, is that even if there's a lot of specialized knowledge in all the little components of the kind of, you know, supply chains and the manufacturing process of the pencil, that like no human brain, not, not even any single organization has it in aggregate, that there's some social layer that we're all plugged into. The layer of money, pricing, private contracts, something like this, which we kind of do have some shared reality about. Maybe you don't, maybe if you start talking about like international trade, there's a little bit of a difference there, but like, let's just say, you know, you could, you could create a certain pencil, like hundred percent built in, in the USA, just as a kind of fictitious example. Well, guess what? Well, in the USA, for the most part, I mean, I suppose we have state to state differences. So maybe it's a bad example, but at the very least, 
all the participants who have all the specialized engineering knowledge of how to build the pencil all have a shared reality knowledge of, hey, how do we negotiate the buying and selling of the goods and the services? And we all kind of have some shared reality understanding of if there was a breakdown in our agreement, we would recourse to tort law or something like this, a civil court or something like that common law idea. So what I'm saying is like there's, for the manufacturing of the thing, even if the collective knowledge of how to do that thing never really exists in any shared reality, um, it actually sort of requires a kind of a shared reality, uh, you might say a protocol layer or a procedural layer that we're all sort of plugged into in order to do the thing. What do you think of this idea? I think it's I think it's a, a a really fruitful direction or avenue, uh, particularly as we've we've already talked about how these these protocol layers, um, I, the way I the way I try to think of it in the book is, what are the co protocol layers that are going to give people skin in the game, right? Because yes, when I say when I say people construct false realities, most of the time, whether it's QAnon or you know, um, you know, just anti-racism narratives or whatever, all of these flat earth, flat earth <laughs> stuff. I mean, there's, you know, that there is very little cost, if any, to being wrong. And in fact, there's often a reward for being wrong. If you can't yeah. pair the reward of being right, if you can't pair the reward with being right, as in tracking truth, then you're going to have an extremely, uh, in the words of Schmachtenberger, polluted information ecosystem <clears throat> because right. people are being rewarded for their wrongness. Right. Okay. Um, and yet, so I've been asking myself, what is the protocol layer? I try in the book to point to something that would resemble a prediction market. And prediction yep. markets have very, very limited scope in what they're actually able to do. Okay. Um, mm -hmm. especially first of all, they're predicting there's something that hasn't happened in the future. There has to be, but uh, the protocol layer you're talking about with prediction markets is we have to agree to some data set that is a measurement at some point in time T that that data set is going to have a, have a measurable quantum. Mm -hmm. Okay. Quantity rather. Um, yeah. And you have to be able to formulate your bet in a precisely measurable way. Right. The, you have to articulate it in that way. And that to be a meaningful. That bet. is a that is a layer. That is a layer of the stack. Right. That's right. When you're talking about let's imagine something like a a a market in perceptions. Because each of mm -hmm. us has a perception. This is the subjective idea, the subjectivity idea. This is my lived experience. Okay. My <laughs> Your lived experience ain't shit, okay? Until you have skin in the game is what I'm trying to argue. But I can't figure out how to put skin in the game. And let me give you an example. Um, let's say we wanted to put, a, a, I wanted to introduce a, fat, a, a truth claim, some sort of claim that relies on data for its answer, okay? That claim yep. in this case is... Uh, Asking people shelter at home orders during a pandemic uh, will 
um, result in lower, significantly lower death rates uh, uh, and mitigation of the um, spreading of, of, of the pandemic virus. Okay. Yep. That is the claim. And then we have to have some measurement of what significant is some either percentage yep. measurement or something. Okay. It's a bit like a design of an experiment thing in the scientific method. Yeah. Yeah. It's got to have, it's got to have all of these, it's got to have this meta framework that we can agree to even to make the bet. Right. That's a procedural protocol thing, right? The design yes. of experiment. Exactly. Makes it valid. Methodological exactly. sort of way of assessing. So in this imaginary market where I place this and I say, okay, I think lockdowns essentially help with slowing disease and reducing deaths. Um, overall, the time window being, let's say, two years. Okay. Yep. Um, at some point in time, T in the future, it either does or doesn't do that. Okay. Right. If you start looking at the data sets now, it's starting to look like lockdowns did absolutely nothing for the spread of the virus. You can do interstate comparisons, intercountry comparisons, and it doesn't look like lockdowns did much of anything. And in fact, they usually just, that just, if anything, it would, um, you would have to have perpetual lockdowns for the entire time, maybe for it to work. And nobody's talking about testing those because that would be an absolute catastrophe on other factors of life, other patterns of behavior, like the mm -hmm. economic patterns of behavior, social patterns, and so mm -hmm. on. Um, so just getting, just getting correct, all of the inputs to this are going to be for a really difficult. And then after you've done that, you want to introduce mechanisms, evidentiary mechanisms. But each of these evidentiary mechanisms is its own truth claim that also has to be evaluated in the same sure. manner. So yeah. what you get is a perceptions, excuse me, perceptions fractal. Yeah. And no one can stand outside his or her reference frame to ever validate it. There is no umpire for this shit. You can always. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> You can, you can bring in an umpire. I mean, the same way you can bring in a couple's therapist, right? right. Or you could bring in a peer review. You could bring in an outside party who's going to say like, hey, we pre-agree. I mean, this, the, the, the debunkers do this also. They say like, hey, you know, psychic person, why don't you define the criteria by which we're going to test whether or not you have psychic powers? And the psychic person goes, like, blah, 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 this. And then we go, okay, cool. And then we apply it and it doesn't turn out. We go like, so what are you going to do now? And the psychic person usually just changes their mind. But I mean- I don't think it's impossible. Like we, 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 we never fully stand out of our entire socially constructed reality, but some of us do stand outside of local sort of debates, I suppose, or what, what are the toeholds? We've got to figure out the toeholds yeah, because yeah. I think but there's we can. something They're here. They're real. Yeah. Like, oh no, it's bringing can. in the umpire. Like is just like, it's, it's just problematic as bringing in judge Lance Ito when, um, you know, on the, the, the OJ trial, right? He, the the jury the jury and Lance Ito decided that that um, that OJ was not guilty, and yet the social fact today is almost uniformly and comprehensively that OJ was guilty. Except there's a significant difference along racial lines about that fact, that social fact. Still, that that may but be yes, true. I agree. That may be true. Yeah. But I, I've yeah. I, most brothers and sisters I talk to are like, nah, he did it. Yeah, yeah. You know. So let's, I want to, I want to use this as a bridge to the future. 
because we've been talking for a while and hopefully I imagine people are like listening going like, well, what are these guys offering for the future? And I want to share some ideas that are kind of based on this. So I think we've touched on a couple, like one is we need to have, I think foundationally some amount of shared reality about the validation procedure, right? Mm -hmm. Like design of experiment or what would or would not count as evidence like ahead of time. Yes. And, and a way of essentially maybe here, there's a way of like kind of outsourcing that validation. I mean, replication is one of these things or some of the innovations in the open science approach, right? Like pre-registration or the publishing of negative results, I think are kind of interesting. If we could incentivize replication through some weird replication funding mechanism, that might be kind of a cool thing. I mean, I don't know. There's like, there's a lot of ideas here, but at the, at the very least, we need to have shared reality at the layer of our validation protocols. Um, and then I think the skin in the game, I think skin in the game is a good one. I think prediction markets is one way to create skin in the game. Although, like you said, you, you, you actually constrain, like if, if we're talking about this kind of like sociological dark matter where we're just like, what is that shit out there? We haven't even quite figured out how to categorize. We haven't even figured out an encoding method by which we could even make bets. So that's never actually- mind, Never mind the GameStop problem, right? Where people can <laughs> say just more sit, about this, right? Like, hey, I'm going to bet, I'm going to bet on this being true because I so desperately believe in it. I'll throw five bucks on it. And I can yeah. get a hundred other people, a hundred thousand other people to throw five hundred five bucks on it because I want that yeah. to be determined as true, whether or not it is true. So if it's right. a, a betting market that doesn't, where one is not tracking truth but tracking belief, ooh, that's extremely problematic. I, I don't know how to filter but I mean, that that's, out. But that's exactly if what we're talking about simply is a social fact. I mean, the value of a share of GameStop stock is a completely fabricated social fact. There isn't like, this is classic subjective theory of value, right? There isn't, there isn't such a thing as what a GameStop stock objectively is. It no. simply is the output of the market forces. But some people so, argue, and I'm, I'm halfway there with them. Some people argue that to invest, to play in the stock market and to have a, a, a less distorted stock market, you have to be committed in some sense, to the future, to the to what you think the company is going to is going to perform in terms of creating value for customers, and that's a very utilitarian kind of thing. It's also intersubjective. I agree with that. Yes, yes. But like, if we were talking about Enron and people had knowledge of the antics of Enron and could open the books, you know, two months before Enron imploded. There wouldn't have been any way to have insider trading because they would have because Enron's stock would have gone down based on some perception of en Enron's actual performance that was being obscured. So there's got to be some connection to the reality of the business or the reality of the enterprise or the reality of the truth claim that you're making. Yes, it can't be a complete intersubjective uh, creation because, quite simply, not those things aren't equally valuable. It's the same with cryptocurrencies. Are we in a bubble right now? Well, what is a bubble? bubble? A bubble is an intersubjective false belief where people think at some point the value is going to emerge and more people are going to start using it or the, you know, there, there's going to be this breaking point or this future innovation that's going to int be introduced. Yep. And yet hodlers are also ideologues. I'm one of right. them. They're, 
They're trying to make it true. They're trying, trying to, to make, make it, it true. true. Yes. Right. Yes. Yes, totally. So this is cool. So I want to bring in one thing here. Like I think a meta principle here is transparency, right? Yeah. Like this idea that like, hey, there's something about if, if you can hide information like Enron did, you can actually uh, like promote like a kind of false version of a social fact, right? Like by hiding information, which it, it, it's a little bit like a, the woman who comes into the workplace and goes like, are you guys together or not? Right. It's like, right. It's like, well, that piece of information, now there's more transparency that changes my perception of what he said. Right. Like there's something like this. So, you know, when I think of, you know, these, you know, Jim Rutt and all the game B people, like one of their principles is, well, more transparency, like the open source, the open source software idea kind of, promotes this idea or, or the, you know, the, the economists who believe in efficient markets sort of believe, well, you got to have all of the, all the information where it's got to be priced in. So there's got to be some amount of like transparency of information available. You know, if, if you kind of have authoritarians who sort of start, you know, controlling speech publicly, you can create and perpetuate like market distortions and, and just completely undermine the pricing mechanism in ways where, you, you you destroy the ability of of like a, a somewhat accurate emergent kind of price calculation on on the on, in behalf of the economy, which is a problem. So transparency. Mm -hmm. But now I'm gonna I wanna I wanna go right into this this fake news thing on this transparency thing altogether. So we got this idea of like um, you know oh a photoshopped image and that was like deep fakes or now people kind of like get an app called Facetune and make their faces look better right. All of these ways, or, or or the ways that, uh, like a video clip, it's just decontextualized. Oh, I took a video. Well, who took that video? When did they take that video? Was that staged or was it not staged? Like, yes, it's like how did that occur, right? Like, and and the idea that you know social media encourages a kind of collapse of context, right? And like the clips get shorter. I mean, I don't know if you go back, if you watch a viral video from like 15 years ago, those things were like five minutes long. You're like, oh yeah, look at this. This is funny. Like. And now I'm like sitting there looking at my watch going like, you know, now I expect my viral video to be fucking like 10 seconds. And yeah. Like, it's like oh. a TikTok vine or something. Yeah. 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 <laughs> totally, totally. Or, 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 uh, or, you know, the clip of uh, Donald Trump saying there are good people on both sides, you know, it's right. like, it just, just, just that, that section. That's all you hear. Yeah. And that, yeah, that, that is a social fact now that, that Donald Trump was rooting for the racists. You know what I mean? It's right. like, it's a social fact. Yeah. So, I mean, I, this is not going to solve everything, but I want to point to like, you know, in this, in this current environment, people are trying to really think about this idea of provenance, right? Like how do we know that that was real? And, you know, Adobe has come up with this kind of consortium. I think they call it the content authentication initiative or content, content authenticity initiative, you know, and like, you know, they're deploying sort of tools. Like, can you like look at a, can you put an image in and have the tool tell you whether or not that image was modified? Like that's sort of a simple mm -hmm. way of doing it. But if I, if I take that and dial it all the way to the extreme, what I imagine, and I want, I want to run this idea by you. What I imagine is like, if we're talking about science or journalism, anything that's kind of promoted as facts, any kind of stuff that sort of like gets upregulated in the information ecology along kind of what we call like validated channels. It's just, I'm just going to call them that for yeah. now. Yeah you have to be able to essentially trace the provenance of all that stuff. So that sort of means Ooh, like, yeah, I, po I pop out my camera and I'm like, let me videotape this cop doing whatever or whatever it is I'm videotaping. It's like, all right, date, 
timestamp, Michael Porcelli unlocked this phone at this geo, you know, this GPS location mm -hmm. at this particular time of day and started videotaping this. You could even say like, he's standing here. He's facing that way, North Northwest by 33 degrees or whatever. And that gets like encoded into the file and then written in a way that cannot be modified without creating another modified version that is also a different hash locked. Yeah. A different hash. Right. So this is like taking the idea of a blockchain and the idea of an internet of things and the idea of like, how do we solve for a fucking post-truth world? And basically saying like, look, you, you want it to be part of the discourse, the public discourse, it's gotta be traceable. And it might not be, it might be edited. It might in the end be kind of like, Oh, you know, find people on both sides, but you can at least click through and go like, show me the whole clip. And the whole clip was like, yes, the whole clip was here by this person at this time. So it's traceable. And if you're, if you're off in a, an anonymous part of the internet, like an eight chan or a four chan, and you're just like making up shit, the anonymous part of the internet will still be there. Almost like a psychedelic drug trip, right? Just people just making up shit, blah, 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 blah. but if you want to ever <laughs> inject like your favorite conspiracy theory into the validated part of the internet, you need to basically go, and this is skin of the game, your reputation. Mm -hmm. Max Borders took a screen grab off of 8chan at this particular time, in this particular date, in this location, he was sitting in his house and then he posted it. And then he wrote this opinion saying, I think this conspiracy idea is true at this time and date, and then put it onto the timestamp. And, and it's indelible. You cannot be, cannot be undone. You can come to be known as a propagator of, of uh, falsehood, not just a, an initiator of the falsehood, yes. like someone who posts it on 4chan, yes. but someone who takes yeah. it off there and, and, uh, and shares it. That's interesting. So it's almost like a universe of metadata that, yes. that gives us more hands on the elephant. The elephant. Yes. I, I think the only solution is going to have to have chains of provenance and you know what's an interesting development people are all is this uh what do they call the, the nfts NFT, are these yeah non-fungible non-fungible token what the fuck is this for like uh, whatever a snapshot of a thing and it's worth a hundred thousand dollars whatever it's like yeah but an nft creates that non-fungibility on the thing right in a weird way like that being the one is like there's something about what NFTs are doing that that I think is workable in this mm -hmm, mm -hmm. this this provenance internet idea, right? Yeah. Like, and at least it's traceable. I mean, you could you could take this really far. You could say like, hey, all the microscopes at school, right? What do they have? Well, they have a little video camera. They have a little time date stamp. It's like <laughs> you put your thumbprint on it. You right? Like you want to do an actual science experiment, folks? You have to use. I mean, it doesn't mean there's aren't, there aren't microscopes in your like little kitty kit, you know, like teenager version of it. It's just, you can't use one of those microscopes to like publish a scientific study, right? You have to, your instrument, whatever it is, your telescope, your microscope, your particle detector, whatever it is, has to say, oh, experiment or so-and-so, you know, accessed and unlocked the thing. It took a measurement at this particular time and date. It uploads, right? Because a lot of these scientific papers, you know, even from the 90s, it's kind of like you, you look at a table how, how of data we know and like, that, where, where how was How do we that know data? that these aren't fabricated? Uh, th this the is metadata difficult. aren't. They're... So let, let, let me... The instruments have to be locked to the data store 
Right. So it has to be level. some sort of uh, immediate uh, distributed ledger that is uh, censorship 100%. persistent, all that sort of stuff. So it has to be cryptographically secured in the hardware on the instrument. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There's, there's a, I, I'm, I'm, I'm mixed minds on this point. And I know we're, we're supposed to be talking about collective intelligence and now we're getting into issues of private privacy, but let me just for, throw it before the end of the show here. We've got a situation where we know that transparency uh, yields, can yield pro-social results. We also know that transparency can yield, yield antisocial results. Yes. Um, for example, if I am trying to guard my assets from some authoritarian regime, okay, I won't say which one yeah. I, I worry about, but I think you can probably imagine. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I don't want to have a chain of provenance associated between me and those assets and where they're stored. Okay. But I still nevertheless want to be able to transact with people all over the world who share my sensibilities. And I want to be able to do that privately. Okay. Because I yeah. don't, I don't think that the, the, I, I, I am trying to exit the nexus of the monetary regime in collusion with uh, the federal government, for example. Oh, look, I just, sorry. Um, now, let's just <laughs> say that I want, that I value that privacy and I, in, and, and I, in, out of genuine concern for the collapse of the, the global economy based on, that is currently denominated in the world reserve currency, which is the dollar, that there's going to be some sort of sovereign debt problem in the future. And I want to have mm -hmm. some means of storing value and transmitting that value that is independent of the dollar matrix. Yes. In one instance, I can have a chain of provenance for all manner of things that would mm -hmm. give rise to the blessings of transparency. Okay. Yeah. And in another in in instance, that chain of provenance can make it that everything I do traceable and trackable under the eye of Sauron. Yes. And yeah. Yeah. It's I, scary. Uh, no, dude, I yeah. fucking get it. Porch is shrugging and with wide eyes, like, holy shit. Yeah. It's, it's like, which way do you go? And I don't know. Right. I don't know the answer to that at all. It, it there's an intuition that I have that in order to solve this collective intelligence problem and to kind of mitigate the incentives of spreading false information that you kind of have to, the skin in the game is your fucking reputation and the, and the, the, the traceable provenance back to you saying utterances at particular times. If you want those things that you're saying to be part of some fucking public discourse, right? Yeah. But then on the other hand, back to David Brennan, by the way, this is this transparent society, right? right. Transparent society. Yeah, totally. Or you, you want to be able to kind of like mouth off however the fuck you want. Right. Which is kind of like, that's also cool. Go to the workshop in the private room or go to the fucking 4chan and do it in some kind of shadows or whatever. Who cares? There's all kinds of places where you can still do that. It's just, we've kind of like, um, we're sort of, you know, what I'm proposing is this idea that what if we improve uh, our epistemics by creating a firewall there? That's a little bit like if you want to leap across from psychedelic world to like validated discourse world, you got to like 
stake you your come rep into on. This, you got to come into this realm that has yeah. all of these different points of coherence that are established yeah. through provenance, metadata, and uh, provenance, 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 metadata, and yeah. um, other other ways to have hooks into the real world hooks into what actually yep. happened and hooks into yeah yeah i mean th th i'm not saying this is to the, the, you you i know how you hate voting but if there is one place where it does seem like there's a really nice protocol design it's in the idea of an anonymous vote right if you kind of go back to the roman senators or whatever it's like you know Cicero is like, I vote no, right? So you like, you know, or I vote yes. And you, you sort of know which way they voted. And in a way, you're doing it in a public space and be like, yeah, I will. I want to fucking stab that guy for how he voted, right? I mean, in a way, like the idea of a private ballot where I can just be like, do, 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 fold the piece of paper, put it in the box. Nobody knows what I said, but I'm saying my thing. This idea of having something that is somehow counted in the like we're creating social reality together world like the counting up of an anonymous ballots but it's not traceable back to me at least that's sort of a that is a social technology that is currently one of the ones that sort of breaks my idea of like having everything have skin in the game but maybe that is the future but i don't know i don't know it's, it seems a little Especially in the cancel culture world, it's like, wait a minute, you can't retract. It's like, no retractions, buddy. Like, you said that shit, done. I mean, you might be like, hey, I'm apologizing for that shit now. Also, that will also be on the validated internet, right? But I mean, these are now two different, like, transactions on a fucking blockchain of, like, yeah, you know, I mean, Max all... making an ass out of himself and Max, Max, Max uh, issuing a retraction. These, these, this layer, this new layer of the stack is yeah uh, for for lack of a better metaphor a double-edged sword yes of damocles hanging over our heads yes <laughs> some mixed metaphors uh <laughs> you want to wrap this up soon how, yeah, do we, how do you want to bring it i home, think dude? this is a good place to take it home i think um i want to just say to our listeners that this shit is hard it's really hard yeah. This is the human predicament, as as um, um, WVO Quine said, and it extends to so many features of our lives, particularly now as we have access to more knowledge and more information than we've ever had mm -hmm. before. Whether or not it's knowledge is an open question. That takes mm -hmm. a measure of wisdom, a measure of circumspection, a measure of the ability to be a fox by dealing in probabilities. And some, as Porcelli has, has suggested, we need new methodologies and we need new means of constructing um, what it even means to be a fact or a truth that we can all agree on. Because in the absence of that, if we're all just dealing in, dealing in narratives with no cost to being wrong, our information landscape is going to be totally polluted in the only thing that we can deal with is our immediate surroundings and even that can be problematic which is why michael porcelli does meta relating uh so yep 
Weaving shared reality with our fellow human beings is an enterprise, and we're just scraping the surface on how to do that. But I hope that we've inspired some folks out there to to show the way. Yeah. Yeah. My closing thoughts are, yeah, I, I echo what Max said. It's it's hard. Um, I think, you know, if there's a takeaway I want for you to have listeners is is like be aware of like what are the implicit um standards of discourse that you are employing in your conversations, whether you're, you know, having a conversation with colleagues or with an intimate partner or on the internet, on social media, and, and sort of recognizing how is it that you are assessing this is, this is something that I trust versus not like maybe there's sort of certain protocols or certain methodological standards that you hold. Uh, but also I want to inspire you to like a, in a broader level of like, I hope to be convincing that at some level, in order for us to have a shared reality as humanity on this earth, and you know, if I'm looking towards the future and looking towards us not totally destructing, I do believe there's at least some minimal version of shared reality we need to have with each other, and we need to correct for what's currently happening as a kind of a breakdown in shared reality in our public discourse. Uh, which has a huge amount of some of these endogenous risks, these kind of like sort of like social risks that we're creating for ourselves and our ability to kind of proceed into the future without potentially like inflicting major harm on ourselves or each other as a civilization. And like, how would you navigate that? Like, how would you, you know, what, what kind of conversations are the ones that you trust What kind or the ones that you feel like, uh, get you more clarity or or more knowledge or or help you maybe correct for your own mistaken beliefs or biases and and what are the ones you know where do you see it in others in your friends and in your communities online where you respect it and like start to become aware if you're not already are of this layer because you know we we need people who are aware of that layer to be in a discourse with each other right on all right. With that, I'd like to thank you all for joining us for social evolution and our conversation on collective intelligence, shared reality, and collective sense making. And uh, we'll see you again next time. Bye, everybody. 